This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Medicinal cannabis, it was legalised years ago in Australia, but do you think recreational use is ever going to be fully allowed across the country? Because even though there are recreational proposals being put forward by some politicians in Canberra, not everyone's backing it. And surprisingly, some of the people against the plans are people who use weed themselves. So why is that? Later, we get into this exploration of recreational cannabis plans. You'll find out when and if it could happen, what other countries' experiences can tell us. Also, we're going to be speaking with someone who was handpicked by the US president to promote youth issues around the world. She's in Australia right now and is dropping by. First, though. Hack. We do not stop until ceasefire. We do not stop until Palestinian and Jewish life are equal. On Triple J. Yeah, we're more than a month into the devastating fighting in the Middle East and you would have been seeing protests every weekend, not just here in Australia, but in most major cities around the world. The majority of those turning out are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, demanding the killing of civilians end immediately. There are other protests too in support of Israel against anti-Semitism. Politicians might have been thinking that these rallies would quieten down, but they've actually been getting bigger. And on the weekend, we saw hundreds of thousands of people turn out in places like London. If you have been heading to protests, I'm wondering, do you think it's working that politicians are listening? Have you noticed any changes? Message in 0439757555. In a bit, we're going to ask a historian how these protests compare with other anti-war movements in history in Australia. But first, here's Jalila Madora with an update. On Friday night, police in Melbourne had to take pretty drastic measures to rein in a fight between 200 pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli protesters. Oh, the pepper spray's out! And that was just the start to a weekend of protesting around the country. Unlike that one on Friday night, most were peaceful. Huge crowds showed up in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane to show their support for Palestinians caught up in Israel's bombardment of Gaza. In Sydney's Botany Bay, pro-Palestinian protesters blocked the arrival of an Israeli cargo ship. The protest was backed by the Sydney branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. Also in Sydney, leaders from different faith groups took part in a pro-Israel protest, calling on the release of all hostages from Hamas's terror attack on October the 7th. Set them free. Bring them home. Around the world, protest movements keep growing, five weeks on from the terror attack that sparked the massive conflict. From Mexico City to Montreal in Canada to Cape Town in South Africa, even in Indonesia, Pakistan and Spain. British police estimated 300,000 pro-Palestinian demonstrators marched to the centre of London. What's happening is an atrocity. Meanwhile, a smaller group of pro-Israeli protesters sang God Save the King outside the British Parliament. In Washington, D.C., Jewish Americans were among the thousands who called for peace. I am here as a Jew. I am here 
and protests were happening in Israel itself. Thousands of protesters met in Tel Aviv to call on the release of the hostages and criticised the Netanyahu government for its handling of the crisis. A few hundred Israelis defied a government ban on anti-war demonstrations by calling for a ceasefire outside the Ministry of Defence. We are calling for a ceasefire now and release of the hostages. Around the world, protests don't look like they're letting up, keeping the pressure on politicians. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. I want to get into this a bit more now, get some context on how what we're seeing right now compares with other times in history. And I've got someone with us who can explain a bit. Dr Effie Karagiorgis is a historian at the University of Newcastle. She looks into the social history of war, like anti-war protests, that sort of thing. Hey, Effie, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thank you so much. How does this anti-war protest movement compare with ones that we've seen in in the past, like maybe the Vietnam uh, protest movement or Iraq? I think that we're looking at numbers really here. The Iraq protests attracted the largest crowds that we'd ever seen before. It was half a million people across Australia protesting our involvement in that war. In Vietnam, we had massive crowds during the moratoriums in 1970 and 1971. And now we're almost beating that. I think a recent protest in Melbourne beat the crowds during Iraq. So we're seeing these massive numbers of people coming to the streets to protest this war, but not only massive numbers of people coming to the streets, but also this incredibly fast-moving process of quiet protest. So all the people who can't go out into the streets, whether they don't have the time, uh, whether they've got kids at home, they've got full-time jobs, they're elderly, they're too young, things that are happening behind the scenes. And that's what I, I study quiet protest during Vietnam. And this is the first time I've seen this incredible movement behind the scenes going on all over the place. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because I guess in the last few decades, things have changed quite a bit. And we have spoken in the past few weeks about digital activism, the role of that in these kinds of protest movements. When you speak about quiet protests, though, what exactly does that mean? What did it mean during the time of the Vietnam War and what does it mean today? So during the Vietnam War, it was activism for people who couldn't go out and march or give out leaflets or something like that. So it would be donations of money, donations of time, uh, donations of equipment or services, and this enormous group of people, so teachers, the elderly, public servants, workers, religious figures, artists, lawyers, just this incredible high school students, this incredible broad movement. I'll give some examples. We see in during the Vietnam War that people, there was criminalisation of certain types of protests. So we would see lawyers helping people pro bono. Now in the protests, we're seeing lawyers at every protest you go to, the Melbourne activist legal support bring out on their Instagram page, they have reported, these are the things that happen at protests. These are what we've observed at protests. One of the really important things about my research about the Vietnam War, it shows that people like the disabled and the elderly who we wouldn't consider 
traditional protesters are and have been doing this protest. There are probably people listening now thinking, well, does this actually work though? Having so many people take to the streets all of the time, is it doing anything? And did it do anything with the previous anti-war movements we've seen in this country and overseas? I think with some of the things like, uh, for example, artists in during the Vietnam War, very famous artists donated artworks and then that would raise money for protest movements, it would legal costs, that sort of thing. Those kinds of things raised the profile of protests. So it made people think, okay, no, it's not just these ragamuffins that are protesting. These are respectable people that are protesting this war. So it increases the numbers. So if you have an increase in numbers, you're drawing attention, not only in society, but also from the political world onto what's going on. These are enormous numbers. If you're a politician and you want to get voted in at the next election, surely you have to pay attention to that. This is Hackham, Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Effie Carra-Georges, a historian from the University of Newcastle, about the protests that we're seeing relating to what's happening in Gaza at the moment and how that compares with other anti-war protest movements we've seen in history. Effie, are you surprised by the size of this? Like you mentioned just the sheer scale in not only here in Australia, but around the world. Has it surprised you? The numbers haven't surprised me, but these other protest movements that we're talking about, Vietnam, Iraq, we're talking about conflicts that we were a part of. So Australian soldiers were there. Australia actively became became involved. And now we're talking about a conflict that, yes, there are many Australians that have relatives there that are worried about what's going there, but we don't have Australian soldiers directly going to fight in a war. So... The fact that Australians are still responding in this way really, look, I don't like to say surprise because there's been a long history and historians have written about the humanitarian impulses of Australians, but we're seeing this massive move for something that's happening overseas. And I think the reason why is because we are seeing through social media, these images, we're seeing, we're hearing what's going on. There are people in Gaza telling us what's going on. There's people there on location telling us what's happening. It's pulling our heartstrings. I don't see that the numbers are going to get smaller until a ceasefire comes. Hack on Triple J. That was Dr. Effie Karagiorgis from the University of Newcastle. We've got messages coming through. Somebody says, I went to the NAM rally uh, on the 5th of November. It was absolutely massive, way bigger than the week before. For sure, I think it's shifting government rhetoric, but we need a ceasefire is what someone says there. Jaden from Umana Beach says, I'm a protester and have seen more politicians ramp up their language uh, in actions, most internationally, but not much here in Australia. Another person, Phil from Victoria, says, it has to stop. I took myself to a rally yesterday because I feel so passionate about what's going on. Look, a, a lot of people are messaging in about what they think of the protest movement and whether they're attending it. Time to move on, though. Hack. One of the most powerful voices we hear in the country today is from our young people. I hear their voices. If you listen, you can hear them too. On Triple J. Half the world's population is under the age of 30. Half of the world's population. So you'd think that young people should have a really big influence on what's happening in the world. The reality, though, as we know, is only a tiny proportion of the world's politicians are under 30, about 3% globally. So it's easy to see why the issues important to you may not be getting a real look in. It's frustrating. We discuss it a lot on this show. 
But there are people around the world trying to change it, and one of them is with us now. Abby Finkenauer is an American politician. She got elected to the US House of Representatives at 28, which is really young for the US, became the youngest woman in history to pass a bill through the House of Representatives in the United States. She's now the special envoy for global youth issues. So she travels the world to talk about all kinds of things, and she's with us now. Abby Finkenauer, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, so happy to join you, and uh, especially on my very first trip to Australia. Well, we hope you're enjoying Australia. I wanted to ask you, though, what your role is as the special Mm -hmm. envoy for global youth issues. What does that mean? Yeah, so there's a bit of a history here. So the Office of Global Youth Issues actually was created around 2010. The Clinton State Department realizing after the Arab Spring or coming out of it that, oh, okay, (laughs) if we care about democracy, if we care about global stability, uh, then the State Department should be doing a lot more work and focused work on elevating the voices of young people around the globe who are the ones who are changing culture. But then in 2019, the office went dormant. And um, it was actually in 2022 when President Biden asked me to take on this role and revive the office, but actually elevated it to special envoy. And so it's truly the the highest office it's really ever been um, dedicated to youth issues, not just at the State Department, but in the United States of America. So why are you in Australia on this visit? Why was it important for you to come here? Well, I was really excited, actually, because we are coming up on the 10-year anniversary next week of our Young Pacific Leaders Program. And so given that Australia is part of that, we wanted to be here as well and get to hear the issues that are on the minds of young Australians, but also learn from each other. Um, I would, I'll tell you some of the most impactful conversations I have had and inspiring have been with young Indigenous Australians being part of different programming. Millennium Kids was one of them that I got to see while I was in Perth, where it was literally the adults in the room getting out of the way and actually funding and supporting these youth-led initiatives. I mean, that's the stuff we should be doing. It's interesting that you say the history of this role goes back to the time uh, following the Arab Spring, Mm -hmm. because as we've just been speaking about, there have been global protests happening around the world relating to what's happening in Gaza now. A lot of those people involved in the protests are young people who say maybe they're not happy with the US's response, uh, they want to see something different. Is that something that you're going to take back to the president? Well, at the end of the day, we want peace, right? We want peace. And I think to get peace, we need to have young people at the table. That is something I know I've been advocating for. I know that is also important to the State Department. We need to bring both young Israelis and Palestinians together to have conversations. Some of those conversations are being had as we speak. And I think those are the types of things that are so important for lasting peace and actually coming up with solutions that make an impact and can endure. We have to have young people at the table, whether it's this conflict or any around the globe. Um, It's why things like the youth peace and security agenda are so important. 
This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with American politician Abby Finkenauer, who is the US Special Envoy for Global Youth Issues in Australia at the moment, to hear from young leaders, talk about how to get more young Australians into leadership. Abby, what is happening in the Middle East, I guess, goes to this point of global instability, uncertainty. There's a mental toll that that takes on young people across uh, the board. There is a lot of pessimism in the world about the future, about the state uh, of society, everything. How do you even begin to address such massive issues in a role like yours? Well, it's an issue whether we're talking about conflict or whether we're talking about just young people existing day to day um, in the online space. I mean, it. Uh, to be frank with you, it's not an issue that I actually came into this role thinking we would focus so much on. However, since I've been in this role, um, part of uh, one of the biggest pieces I work on is the civic engagement part where, again, we're talking to young people about becoming policymakers themselves and raising their voices and using those voices. But the reality is, as we've been having these conversations, both in the United States when there are international visitors visiting us, but also when I'm out, whether it's in Cambodia, Albania, or or Luxembourg, every single time the topic of online harassment and hate has come up. If we want to have democracies representative of the people, we have to have all people being represented. But right now, we have a whole generation of young people who are looking at this and going, why would I want to be in a space where I'm getting attacked? Or, um, I mean, this is something, to be honest with you, personally, I dealt with in the United States when I was in office or running for office, death threats, um, disgusting harassment thrown your way. And you have people just saying, I just am not going to do this anymore. And that's a real issue because we can provide all the leadership training in the world or resources to say run for office. But if we aren't doing the work to make young people feel supported and heard and resilient, then what are we doing? Is it a bit daunting coming into a role like this with so many issues, whether it is mental health, uh, global uncertainty, instability, climate change, all of the biggest issues yeah. that are important to young people. Is it daunting coming into this role and thinking, oh, I've got to do something about it? Yeah, absolutely, right? But the reality is every issue is a youth issue. I mean, there's not one thing that young people aren't touched by or shouldn't be heard. And I think, again, that is one of the other honours of getting to do this work is getting to push to make space in spaces where young people haven't really been seen before, even like the national security space, right? They matter in that space. They matter in every single, you know, piece of society. And again, they have some of the best ideas. And it's not just a nice thing to include young people. It's literally a benefit to everyone to do so. And it's necessary to actually have the best ideas at the table. Think about where your space is at this moment in time and give what you can where you're at. I'm just, again, as hard as some things are, I've never been more hopeful about the future at the same time. Well, there's definitely a lot to do. We appreciate you making the time to speak with us. US Special Envoy for Global Youth Issues, Abby Finkenauer. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Hack. Instead of going to a pub, you could go to a pretty chilled out cannabis cafe. On Triple Jack. Do you think we should make weed legal for everyone? 
Not just medicinal use, recreational use too. Look, you're either for or against it. And maybe you're thinking everyone against it just hates marijuana, just hates weed. It's not true though. Because the first ever bill to create a legal recreational marijuana market in Australia has actually divided cannabis users. It's an interesting, interesting story. The ABC business reporter Emilian Terzon has been looking into it. Smells like marijuana. Yep, absolutely. I hope so. <laughs> and so how much would this fetch on the black market, this whole bag? So this bag's probably worth about $150,000 on the black market. No, this isn't some shady underground drug deal. I'm actually in one of the country's biggest medical cannabis farms. They're growing weed in this huge greenhouse that is literally the size of a soccer field. How much cannabis do you have here? Uh, So in here, we've got 30,000 plants in this one facility, 4,000 square metres. The guy I'm chatting with is Tom Varga. He is the co-founder of this whole operation. Most of the guys that work here, including myself, have scripts um, and are cannabis users in some way, shape or form. It's a great plant-not-pills solution to dealing with stress, anxiety, insomnia. The use of medical cannabis was legalised in Australia in 2016. Tom reckons that recreational use will soon be decriminalised right around the country. Some might argue three years, some might say ten. The answer is it's probably somewhere in between. Some might say decades. Never. Yeah, look, I certainly think if we look around the world, you know, the sky hasn't fallen in when adult use is legalised. We already have somewhere between half a million to a million kilos being bought on the illicit market today. Why not bring that into a legal system where it's controlled and we can send someone away from Dan the drug dealer to maybe Dan's buds? It's still illegal to use, possess, grow and sell cannabis in most parts of the country, except in the ACT where it's been decriminalised and it is now legal to grow at home for personal use. This means that overwhelmingly there's still a very profitable black market for Australia's most popular illicit drug. The Greens reckon the best way to cut out drug dealers is by legalisation. They've lodged a bill to do just this in the federal parliament. You know, I'm a Green senator, of course, at some point around in my life I've consumed cannabis. That is Senator David Shoebridge. He says that legalising weed for adults could generate $28 billion in government revenue over a decade from things like GST, company tax and a 15% specialist sales tax. And Senator Shoebridge isn't just talking about smoking and vaping. Maybe a, a cannabis matcha latte uh, on a Friday afternoon or a brownie or a, you know, a, a cannabis gummy. The Greens model does include strict rules around advertising the drug and says it should only be sold to people over 18. They also want to cut out big pharma, big tobacco and big alcohol and focus on building up small to medium-sized businesses. And it's that focus on excluding big pharma that has already got some in the industry offside. Back inside the cannabis greenhouse, 40 employees are decked out in sterile clothing as they work with the plants. This is one of the many requirements that Tom says is needed to comply with the high standards required to make medical marijuana. He is worried the Greens plan is going to flush the market with substandard chop that is made by unregulated small-time producers. What we ingest and what we inhale, we have an expectation for patients and for consumers, it meets a minimum standard. So we need to have that regulation. 
regulation. We need to have that framework around this. Weed is currently selling for around $10 to $14 a gram on the black market. The Greens modelling aims to sell it legally at around these prices too. The Greens model at the moment is all based on the fact that they convert a very large parcel of the illicit market to the legal market. To achieve that, you need guys that can produce large volumes of cannabis at scale at a competitive price like what we can. At the moment, the Greens policy maybe neglects some of that. The Greens bill will be debated in Parliament next year and it needs support from at least one of the other major parties to pass. The Labor government won't say if it supports legalising adult-use cannabis or not, but that this is a matter for the states and territories. This leaves the Coalition, who actually paved the way for medical marijuana last decade. But Coalition member and the Shadow Attorney-General, Michaelia Cash, says they don't support going any further. I have spoken to many parents over many years in relation to their children who have utilised drugs and even cannabis. And those who've had detrimental effects I can tell you, it can change people's lives. And unlike other politicians that I spoke to for this story, Senator Cash says she won't be having any marijuana if it is ever legalised. If I go into a coffee shop, quite frankly, I'm happy to have a normal cup of coffee. With those supporting cannabis still not agreeing on the best way forward and neither major party coming out in support, it is looking unlikely that the Greens bill will pass next year. Senator Shoebridge says the momentum is growing and it's unstoppable. And if the federal government throws their weight behind the Greens bill, he'll happily invite the Prime Minister down to a cannabis cafe. I'll invite him down to uh, to, to one in Kingston and, and maybe he can chill out after a pretty intense parliamentary week. Hack. On Triple J. Amelia Tez on there. Amelia's always looking into the interesting stories. Also, what about that offer from the Greens, the Prime Minister? I don't know what do you think about that. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says recreational use should be legalised because it's the same choice as alcohol. The biggest problem is that anyone can grow it, so it makes it difficult for the government to make money out of it someone's opinion there. Well, let's get into this a bit more, what we can learn from overseas and what the evidence tells us. Dr Jack Wilson is with the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre. He researches the harms and benefits of cannabis use. G'day, Jack. Thanks for coming on, Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's legal to smoke and grow weed in other parts of the world we know, whether it's Europe, Canada, those kinds of places. Do we know what the consequences of that has been? Because we are hearing from some medical experts in Australia that are worried about the harmful impacts. Is that reflected in the evidence? Yeah, I mean, obviously we're seeing that shift more towards more legal cannabis policies um, in places, um, particularly Canada and America. But um, I guess what we're seeing at the moment is that among adults, use, prevalence of use and prevalence of cannabis use disorder may be increasing. Um, but interestingly, this is not really the case among young people. Um, however, it is a little too early to say. So we've got to be a bit cautious about making these conclusions because, as you know, Canada, um, it, it's only been a, a, a few years since they legalised for recreational use. So we're not too sure about the long-term outcomes yet. Right. So it's hard to say either way. I mean, you're researching impacts of cannabis on mental health, good and bad impacts, I imagine. What have you found? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I guess the main concern is among young people. Young people are the at, at most vulnerable to the harms of cannabis. Um, and while many people that use cannabis, both adults and young people, well, um, well, 
most people won't experience any harms. Um, it is not without harm. And, and you know, uh, particularly if people are using frequently at an early age, as well as uh, potent, more potent cannabis products. So that's cannabis, uh, cannabis products with greater THC content. They are associated with um, more harmful use in terms of um, uh, psychotic symptoms, cannabis use disorder, um, and less so anxiety and depression. Because we've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I smoke cannabis quite frequently. It helps with anxiety. Sometimes I'm feeling clearer and calmer. Uh, you know, do you hear that a lot from people as well? Yeah, absolutely. Many people um, report that it helps them with a lot of different sort of um, uh, um, issues within their life. Um, but I think it's important to speak to a doctor because, um, you know, cannabis, even though people report that it may be helping them, it may actually not be, um, and and there may be more effective um, medicines for for their condition. The Greens have said that they want it pretty strongly regulated. Um, how far do you think we are from regulation of recreational use of cannabis in Australia? Well. I think uh, we've sort of been saying this over the past sort of 10 years, you know, we, we feel like we're getting closer and closer to that legalization of uh, recreational use. So it's difficult to say, but I would say that it's reasonable to think that it, it is coming. I mean, we usually take some of these trends from America um, and other areas over this overseas. So it, it is a bit of a difficult one, um, mm. but I guess uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, look, it's an interesting uh, area of research that you're focused on. Dr. Jack Wilson from the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure. Hack on Triple Jack. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.